Hey, bookworms. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina conversation. Today's episode features a chat with Melody Edwards. We're talking about her book, Once Persuaded, Twice Shy. That comes out on February 27th. <clears throat> so Once Persuaded, Twice Shy is a retelling of Jane Austen's Persuasion. I have not read Persuasion before, so I'll tell you with confidence it is not a prerequisite to enjoy Once Persuaded, Twice Shy. And I really enjoyed learning about Melody's writing process and how her being from Canada, trying to appeal to American readers and making sure all those uh, references cross over. And I also was appreciative of her. She let me bitch about geese for a hot second and we shared our disdain for those creatures. <laughs> um, but either way, I'll let you guys get to it. Here is Melody. Edwards. So today we've got Mel Edwards. We are talking about Once Persuaded, Twice Shy. That book comes out on February 27th. Melody, thanks so much for joining me today. I So I'm going to give you a heads up. I have not read Persuasion ever. I've read other classics, classical literature, things of that era of those iconic writers. But I, so I don't know, it wasn't a bad thing. I, this was adorable. I enjoyed getting to know and everything. So I'm excited to, to talk to you about it today. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And reading Persuasion is absolutely not a prerequisite. Yes. <laughs> I know. Once I realized that, I was like, Oh, but no, I'm sure I'm like, I get the gist. Yeah. So before we get started, kind of piggybacking off of that, could you give a little summary of the book so that people belong? Sure. So as mentioned, it is a modern reimagining of Jane Austen's Persuasion, her famous second chance romance. And my envisioning of it is Anne Elliott is a woman in her 30s. She's in a small town here in Canada, right near the American border. And she is town councillor and she runs the table that brings in all the tourists. And she's very large and in charge to a certain extent. But she is taken advantage of by everyone. She is run into the ground by her work and her responsibilities and her family. And then what happens is the one who got away from her earlier happier days, Ben, comes back into her life. And we have a sort of forced proximity in the small town in that his aunt and uncle buy a winery and the winery is doing a business deal with her fiance. And it's whether or not she can get her life back on track in terms of what would make her happy and if they can put their romance back together. Yeah, yeah, that's the cute. We all like the cute tropes. So I did. I think this was one of my first times I've ever read Second Chance Romance. And it was cute for sure, because then you get like the background, you get her her thoughts and what she's going through and because she has no choice and she absolutely did not expect to run into him again, let alone have to like work on a project with him and it was really yeah you, you gave me a little baby step into that subgenre that trope of romance and I liked it it was super cute so can you go this is your debut novel correct no this is my second novel okay okay just kidding <laughs> okay so can you go to like your background a little bit and how you decided to just bring this project this retelling to the world for sure so my background I'm from Toronto Ontario I got an English literature degree and then I went to work in corporate communications because it was a lot of writing and I liked that. And then a couple of years ago, a lot of people found side projects during the pandemic. I wrote my first novel, which was a modern reimagining of Jane Eyre called Jane and Edward. And I was very lucky that they wanted a second novel. And so I went back to the classics that I loved in my undergraduate degree. And I liked Persuasion. Persuasion was absolutely one of my favorites. Like, not a lot of people love the second chance romance trope. And it's not actually 
one of my top loved tropes, but I just, I love this book. I thought I'll reimagine this one and it's coming out February 27th. Yeah, that's so fun because I, yeah, I majored in English as well at my undergraduate and that's why I'm really familiar with those other classical writers and pieces, like just those iconic like collections that pave the way or yeah, pave the way for literature as we know it today. And I think it's just so fascinating how, oh, holy crap. Yeah. Persuasion was a second chance romance trope. That's so funny <laughs> to think about it that way. They probably didn't, I don't know what labels were around back then, but I think it's so cool how like to go back and be like, oh, wait, is this considered historical romance? Wait, is this considered contemporary at the time or whatever, like enemies to lovers, things like that. It's holy crap. They're like, those were everywhere. It's like, you can't, it, I think it's so funny, like to put that in that context, but like way back then when, especially with, I don't know, we can get into it, but like with women back then, of course, they, there was just limited opportunities and writers, women writers at the time still had to be taken seriously. But then we are like looking at it now and we're like, oh yeah, that's the Austin, the Brontes, like that's like to totally... Yes, a household name to anybody who's really familiar with literature in, in any sense of it. So yeah, I think that that was so fun. So yeah, I did see, what was it, Jane and Edward, but I guess I, I was assuming that this was your debut and then the other one was your second because I'm familiar with Jane Eyre. I did read that and I remember I picked up, I don't know if you've heard of Wide Sargasso Sea. That, yes, I've read that one. Yes, one. where it was Bertha's or that was her name. Bertha right? Mason's story. Hers, yeah, hers. yeah, yeah. How uh, she came okay. to be the wife in the attic. Yeah, spoiler alert, right? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just really fascinating. When I read it, I was like, I just remember thinking, I just thought it was so cool. That author, I forget her name, but she tapped into that, like hearing the other side of that, like why did she go mad? Why did she set the house on fire? Like, why was she trapped in that room? Why did they do that to her? And it was just so interesting and fascinating to me. I think I liked that a little bit more, or I I just found it such like a perfect complimentary piece, like prequel to the more well-known story. I just thought that was so cool. And yeah, I remember reading it and there were certain quotes in there that would just stand out. This poor woman who she just had, she, cause she, there was no way she was going to meet expectations. And she was just like, it was just treated unfairly. And then shit happened. And she, I don't know. I'm, I'm, the older I get, I'm more like, yes, queen, burn the world down, burn it all down. Who fucking cares? I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. I, I think there was, I think the author is Jean Rees, who did Why Sargasso Sea. I think, does yeah, that sound right? Sounds, yeah. And then there's a short story as well to add to that compliment called The Yellow Wallpaper, oh, advertised yeah, as job. Jane Eyre spinoff, but a lot of people are, take it like a wide Sargasso Sea of, of, of how the woman in the attic mm -hmm. came to be. And it is a woman slowly losing her mind as, as she's trying to recuperate from a physical illness. And that's just her descent into madness. It's really quite good. So you might check that one out as well. But I think what's, what's nice about called? these things is, like you said, you, you go back to the original literature and the stories are so good and they've got all the tropes and they've got such psychologically deep characters and such complex characters that we can just endlessly spin out into various stories and like some of the questions i get when i do these adaptations is what else there's so much in a character like ann elliott i feel like he could spin out that's why we have so many of these retellings right you could spin out any number of stories just going back to the source material i feel like i could do a whole because ann elliott is so competent in the original novel so secretly competent i feel like i could have done a whole persuasion retelling with ann elliott as an emergency room nurse that would have worked yeah. as well right 
because she's on um, top of so her I think shit. That's she would have. She she's on top good. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I get the question because in the original novel, she's really quite. She's wallpaper. She's fairly oppressed, right? Because it's Regency eras, and she's unmarried, and she's stuck with her father and her father's house, and all all that entails. But when I go back to the book and I'm back to the original source material, I'm like. But she's actually very secretly competent. There's scenes where there's a, I don't want to spoil it, you haven't read it, but there's scenes where there's a medical emergency and she's there triaging things and saying, we need the doctor, we need this and we need that. And there's a part in the what kicks off the story is her family's in debt and they have to leave their house. And she goes, I can drop this budget that'll get us out of debt. Okay, they won't take that. I'm going to close down the house, say goodbye to all the servants, say goodbye to all the tenants, et cetera, et cetera. So she's secretly very competent. So I ran the character that way. And I like that spin off. And the same way we're talking about why did Sargasso see? How was she constrained by the time? And what's another re- review of that? Yeah, I know. It's so fun. Where, you, where was that? The short story that you were talking about? Or the low wallpaper? It's called okay, the yellow wallpaper. I'm going to have to save that because I think, I don't know, I just, for some reason that White Circus OC just really spoke to me. I don't know, maybe because I was just like. Oh yeah, it's a great novel. Yeah, you just empathize with her. And I think it's so powerful, like the more I read and the more, obviously just being an an English undergrad, that I learned certain tools, how to analyze literature and, and notice certain things and see parallels and things like that. Because you like even historic, like novels that were written decades ago, they were definitely like critical of the times, like in that day, just a treatment of women or current events or social class, things like that. So I think it's it's fascinating to see that people are doing that, authors are doing that today, but then they were still doing that decades ago. That's so much, I think, of why history and like those two kind of subject matters complement one another because you can look and see okay was this person criticizing this was this person trying to play off of this things like that so I thought yeah it was that was just very cool and yeah I'll have to pick up Jaden Edward even though I don't know I'm still I don't care I'm still not really a fan of Mr. Rochester but I don't think many people are even though she ended up with him at the end it's just like, yeah okay you redeemed yourself but I'm um, okay good well, he's not everyone's <laughs> he's not everyone's cup of tea and I'll admit he was a challenge to bring forward into modern times mm. but I think what's nice about Jane Eyre is yeah, he's not everyone's cup of tea, that's for sure. But he's her cup of tea, right? She's got a certain character. They're so clearly defined characters. And it's the fact they complement each other. And whereas a lot of people would pass on by them. And I think she gets that experience when she goes out into the world and there's Sinjin rivers and there's other people and other things in her. But she likes Mr. Rochester because that's the one that works for her. Yeah, he did go through some growth too, to an extent. So I think all these female-led novelists of that time period, like from Regency and Victorian and stuff, what's nice is the female characters go through growth, but the male characters go through growth as well. Like Rochester is humbled. He has all his injuries. He has to try and save his wife when she sets things on fire. He tries to redeem himself. He thinks Jane is lost to him. And he's very humbled. And what's also nice, I think, is, and you get this in Persuasion as, as well, when they meet up a second time, it's on more equal footing. So when Jane first meets Rochester, she's a governess, she's poor, she's inexperienced, she's young. When she comes back at the end of the novel, she's an heiress, she's seen something of the world, she's a little bit older, she's a little bit more experienced. She chooses Rochester, she's not just, oh, thank goodness, save me from this life of being a governess. And you get a little bit of that in the original persuasion as well, because when the romance first doesn't work out, Anne Elliot is above Captain Wentworth. She's from a higher family. She's from a wealthier family. She's got more refined manners. He's really still got to make his way in the world. And when they meet up together at the end of the novel, 
he's become a captain, he's got his own fortune, and her family's, to a certain extent, been humbled. They're in yeah. debt. They've been shown how foolish they are. And so it's this nice, well, we're, and in the original meeting, she's 19, I think, and he's 21 or something like that. So it's mm -hmm. nice when they meet up again. They're a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature. Anne's had other marriage proposals. She Charles Musgrove has proposed to her. She's had other options. It's nice when you circle back to, this is not someone I took out of desperation or no other options or this is my first mad love. This is a considered choice. And I think that's really <laughs> nice about those books. I love that term. It's a considered choice. Like she, she thought about it. She had her, she made sure that she thought it through and it was, I don't want to say, oh, she had the upper hand, but it was like she, during the story you're retelling, like she was, she was like, she had some regret because he, he had to bend, he had to grow too. And now that, but then that's as a reader week, you're showing to us that, that she was definitely pressured by people around her of, or her mom, essentially that it wasn't, like she didn't want her mom didn't want her to go through what she went through choosing him and then later she realizes she's we'll try to be <laughs> spoiler free but yeah later she realizes i'm in this position i still ended up in this position i still ended up caring for these people and enabling them and stuck and it's what's that character growth i'm a sucker for character growth and so i'm really happy that she there was on both sides for sure. Ben grew too. And it was almost, you didn't push it to where it was like, oh, he was doing it for the girl or he was doing it to prove him, prove something to her. It was, it seemed more like he was doing it because he just think it almost happened organically or it was a mix of both. At least I got it maybe because it was mostly told through, it was told through her point of view, but I got the gist that he he grew up a little bit and it had something to do with her. If correct me, it's been a couple months since I read this book. So correct me if my, my memory is a little bit spotty with that. But yeah, I just, I, I really enjoy the character growth part of it and how these two separate characters, it may be right place, wrong time. And they just had to grow up and be apart and live, grow for themselves and then meet each other at that level than like once they were ready. Oh yeah, I think growth is probably a hallmark of a lot of Jane Austen novels. Darcy and Elizabeth and Pride and Prejudice both definitely have their own growth periods too and they come back together at the end. And it's always that kind of self-awareness that Jane Austen foists on her characters which makes them more conscious I think when they choose their partner at the end or they find their partner again. And in Anne Elliot, like in the original Persuasion, Jane Austen's very careful to never say that she was right or she was wrong in saying no to him the first time. There were, I tried to make that come across in, in my modern interpretation, there were legitimate concerns back then. A man had to be able to economically support a wife. He was at war. There's dangers with trying to leave your wife on the boat or leave your wife behind. Or There's complications. They're very young. There's a line in the original novel where it says he made money freely, but he spent money freely. So there's some concerns about his character, which, again, could be character flaws or could just be a man who is young. So as time goes on, they get to grow up and they get to see who they really are. But I think it's important that the book is called, the original book is called Persuasion. And the the story goes that Jane Austen wrote it because a niece had written to her and asked for her advice on one of her suitors. And Jane Austen wrote back and said, the dangers of me saying one way or another, whether you should take this man, like every woman must decide for herself. 
she could tell you to take them and this could happen or I could tell them not to take them and no other suitors come. There's no way to guarantee a happy ending. So everyone has to decide for themselves. So that's the beauty of the original novel, I think, and why we all love it. It wasn't a wrong choice. It wasn't a right choice. It simply wasn't really her choice. And that's the problem. And so when you get to the end of the novel, the original novel, it's her choice and it's his choice. And they take whatever highs or lows are going to come with that. I love that. That's I didn't never knew that she came up with the idea because her niece was asking for advice. I love that. So they say yeah. they have a letter exchange <laughs> between them and they think that's probably what what led to persuasion, which is her last completed novel, I believe. Oh, okay. God, that's not too far of a of an assumption or whatever, or deduction, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's so fun because I'm thinking how and she was and she was smart about that advice so you're gonna listen to your gut you're gonna listen to your own intuition nobody else knows like your feelings and your experiences with the specific person other than you even if you look at today you don't know the relationship unless you're inside of it and you can have everyone outside of it has their opinions and whatever but um it's so different when you're inside it and it's so those little nuanced moments or those little things that make you think either make you think twice or kind of reassure you we're like no I'm making the right choice or I don't is this what I want it could go either way exactly so hopping into this discussion did you approach this book the same way as you did the first one did you were there any new things that you discovered big lessons learned things like that yeah this one definitely was more planned when I wrote my first one, I had a concept of how the book would work and I had a, a written outline and then I just went at it. And what you love, a wonderful editor in Kate Seaver over at Berkeley with Penguin Random House. And my edit, my agent, Melissa Edwards at Stone Song weighed in as well. She was great. No relation, by the way. We just have very similar names, Melissa Edwards and Melody <laughs> Edwards. That's fun on paperwork. And they really, really, really stop and think about structure and character arcs and the development milestones, but also motivations. When I was making edits in that first book, I'm like, this entire motivation falls apart. The motivation mm -hmm. should be laced through several scenes and things like that. So it made me think of a novel as a whole. It's one thing to, to get to the end of your first draft of your first novel and then on your second novel, you're like, okay, I know what it's like to write the end now. And that changes how I approach the beginning. So there's definitely planning in this one. And yeah, those are the big lessons. So what I do when I do these modern adaptations is I take the big scenes from the original novel, like in Jane Eyre, that would be the fire or his horse going down in Hay Lane and them having their first meeting. And then I try to look at the significance of those big scenes to the characters. And then I chart that onto big scene equivalents in modern times. So in Jane Eyre, his horse goes down on an icy patch and then he starts cursing at her, right? That she bewitched his horse, bewitched the lane, et cetera. So when I did Jane and Edward and they're meeting in an office, I have him having a debacle with a modern coffee machine and him cursing her that she programmed the coffee machine to attack him that way and spray him with hot coffee and things like that. And what that first meeting means for both characters. So that's the mapping I do. But definitely as I'm progressing in my career as a novelist, I am learning to plan more because it definitely saves you grief further down the line. That's good. <laughs> That's a good lesson to learn from that experience for sure. Because I think I know some uh, authors are like their pantsers and some yeah. definitely outline. And I think it's just, yeah, figure out what works for you and I'm a planner. I'm really organized. So I totally get it to where you were like, you almost had this little like revelation. You're like, this is so much 
less stressful. Easier. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely started as a pantser and I have my moments of pantser. That's why I want to do my outline. I don't say each chapter is going to be this, but I say, these are the major events. These are the emotional milestones. And then I let myself be a pantser a little bit in between connecting them. And then some interesting scenes come out of that. I think this character would actually say this. And I didn't plan for that, but I'm going to let them say that and that'll be fun. But the rest of it is definitely planned. I'm definitely getting more into the planning as I go. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you do, you right, whatever you got to make happen to make it work. Was that your pantsing? Was that the goose? Uh, sorry, I forgot his name. Was he in the original? Hello, goose. Yeah, he was pantsing. He was definitely pantsing. <laughs> I love it. was a good pantsing. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I because I heard it was like one in the the summary that you read of each one, and and it mentioned the goose, and I was like, oh, is this gonna be cheesy? I was like, oh, okay, we'll see how it goes. But I was like pleasantly surprised that he was very funny. It it he definitely was the notorious town goose, where he of course he would come in at the least opportune moments, like where he just waited until. How am I going to come and fuck this shit up for Anne? It's funny because he, he started out. So I live near Harbor and we have mad Canadian geese out there all the time. And they're they're beautiful, majestic animals, but they're really a pain in the butt. And they're incredibly mm. aggressive and they poop everywhere. So they're when thugs. I was in my first scene, Double O Goose was like a bit of a pants or a bit of fun. And then as I was planning out the rest of the novel, I'm like, you know what? He's really useful because I've got a romance here where people won't make eye contact and people won't talk to each other. And so I have to keep them in that forced proximity. And then I need things to interrupt them from either having a conversation. Double O Goose has just become the perfect bowling ball that I can throw into any (laughs) scene I need, knock all the pins down and start again in the next scene. So he started as a pantsing bit of fun and then he turned into a serious planning device, which was nice. Yeah, geese are thugs. I they don't care. Are thugs, yeah, it's good. They're seriously, they're like hanging their gangs and they don't care. I just because I was in I was in the flag corps color guard, however you want to call it, in high school. And during marching band season, I just remember just geese poop everywhere. And yeah. the only thing worse than geese poop is wet geese poop. And when you're <laughs> doing your formations on the field, you have your coordinates and it doesn't matter if you're walking in a line of geese poop you got to use that exact path to get to your next formation and otherwise it just doesn't work (laughs) and so I just remember the geese and I'm in like the Chicago area by the way so like the Midwest and so I that was the time where they were like south and making pit stops and stuff and so it was just it was horrible (laughs) it was horrible and now even now like I'll take my my dog is so gross she likes eating it and so I'm just like no the geese poop is the bane of my existence during those months of the year because I either (laughs) I gotta avoid them all the time and I just remember (laughs) they're like I didn't realize how large they were until I got so close to them and they're huge they're huge yeah they're like I don't know what like 30 pounds it looks like I don't even know and I remember learning learning a bit about them here and there how if you'll see like a lone geese kind of just wandering around in this random spot but it's because his mate is laying eggs or protecting the nest or whatever and I remember it was like outside of a department store I think it was Kohl's there's very clear memory in my brain there was like a random goose and I was like oh shit yeah maybe he's protecting his nest so I'll just go to this side but he was like right in front of the entrance like to the like the sliding doors automatic doors and I just remember okay I noticed him and I just kept my distance but then I look back and there was this couple walking and they didn't see him 
And all of a sudden you just hear this like big honk. And like, he was like, oh, hell no. Like he was like flapping his wings, puffing his chest, getting, being protective. And I just heard this girl scream. Oh my God. And I could, I felt like I couldn't help but laugh my ass off. It was like one of the funniest things I've ever witnessed. And, I'm, and so that's why I think like when I, I felt bad for laughing, but at the same time I was like, no, that was so funny. And then you get back to geese. Yeah. Yeah. either one way or the other you gotta just I don't know and I have some friends who are like I'm not scared of them I'm like all right good for you like you are brave because yeah that's what made me that's just all of my I don't know reluctant tolerance the way I feel about geese it's it was really funny that to find that in the book because I was like it was like validation and also it was just super fun I just loved 007 or double goose just like causing chaos i just that's how you move the plot along that's how you give makes things interesting and like he would show up obviously at the most random moments too and it was just like i wouldn't expect him to show up or i wouldn't expect him to be a problem and there he is <laughs> geese geese go where they were wherever they they like to go i know like i said i live in a harbor so we got a lot of them i'll drive 20 minutes inland to a grocery store and there's one sad little bleached out patch of grass on a curb and there's geese trying to nest in i'm like what are you doing there's a lake just down the road like right. they go where they want and <laughs> people just abandoned their grocery carts that day because they they were in front of where you put your carts back i'm like yeah respect the geese they will hiss at you they will charge you they are not to be messed with yeah i hate also because when I, I like to i like to run outside and when i'm running i certain routes I'll go on them okay like I gotta okay I'll go I'll be like okay nope <laughs> I just changed my route because sometimes they move out of the way but sometimes I also run with my dog and she no she doesn't get it I don't know I'm sure she can hold her own but I'm like girl mind your own business just just leave them alone. <laughs> but that's so funny no I was like I that was a very smart and fortunate pantsing move I'm glad it worked out Hopping off the experience approaching topic, what kind of research did you do? Did you like read it a bunch of times or like how I just like, how do you approach like a retelling and what kind of research did you do? And anything fascinating that you learned along the way? Things like that. So going back to my degree many years ago now, and these were particular novels that I liked. And so these were novels that I studied. So like in my fourth year of my undergraduate, I wrote a whole essay on Anne's decision to reject Wentworth in the first place. So I was revisiting those old things. I've always loved Jane Austen. I've always loved Jane Eyre. And I've got versions of my bookshelf, got multiple copies of my bookshelf. I have two big books of Jane Austen's letters that I can read. I've got a couple biographies of her. So I've already had that sitting all on my shelf. And it was a matter of refreshing myself on it, revisiting it. I've definitely read the novels many times. I've definitely seen many film adaptations, enjoyed <laughs> those. And yeah, so that's just all swimming in the in in the background. I don't know that I went out of my way to do research because I felt like I already had that research. It was just a matter of revisiting it. Sure. And then approaching it less as a reader and more as a writer and seeing how is this structured and how can I replicate that structure. For Jane and Edward, I set it on Bay Street, which is like the Canadian version of Wall Street. It's our financial district. And I worked there for about a decade. A lot of that was just what I saw when I was there, what I saw were other people's experiences or my own experiences. For my persuasion retelling, Once Persuaded, Twice Shy, it's set in Niagara-the-Lake. 
that's about an hour down the road out in Niagara on the lake even though I'd gone many times growing up just going and picturing scenes there hanging out in the hotel lobbies going on the hikes that sort of thing looking at the floral arrangement from the street lights and things like that and just again seeing what I can use so I, I feel like I had a lot of resources in my toolbox it was just revisiting it and picking which pieces I wanted to use and what might work and what might not. The town itself, Negrin Lake, is a gorgeous town and there's so much to do there. And I feel like I only got one tenth of the delights of it mm -hmm. into the novel. But then you really can't capture the whole thing. It's just such an experience to go. Yeah, I've been in Niagara Falls and I'm assuming that's just in that area, right? Yeah, that's about 15 minutes down the road. Okay, cool. I So then maybe I, I probably went there too, just from driving around because I remember I think it was like one of my my husband's anniversaries before we got married was yeah we went to Niagara Falls we did the whole touristy thing and I just remember it was like one of it's such a fun trip I figured it would be fun but like we drove there and it was like I don't know 10 hour drive and but I just remember yeah we stayed in a hotel by the, God, the casinos that's right there the real the real touristy part but oh yeah we like in hell with the Ripley's and stuff right yeah, yeah it's fun. you were like fall no, let's just yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was yeah, great yeah. views yeah for sure so we were like yeah let's just do it. I think we had a Groupon I think that's why we chose that but we were like yeah let's do it and then we did like a, a day tour of all the hot spots and we did the Made in the Mist I think one of the last times they did it and we the so the next the rest of the time we were like oh yeah let's revisit this spot this was really cool so we like went to like other spots where we really wanted to spend more time <laughs> and take our time there but yeah I just when you when it, so it was like Niagara on the lake I was like you yeah you captured like the vibe for sure it sounded like super cute super quaint like just I could definitely see myself like maybe and like I said I probably did go there at one point we probably drove through it if it's like down the road because I we since we drove we had our own car where we were just like okay let's like oh are we ready to go to this winery hell yeah let's go <laughs> like oh yeah was, no it it's fun. wineries galore it's yeah. nice like I've been to the Niagara Falls Eric I just live an hour or so away and Niagara Falls especially knows I'm early 20s like we all want to go to Niagara Falls for the casino and the nightclubs and the restaurants and the fun stuff like made on the mist and they've got the cable car suspended above the falls and things yeah. like that so much fun and then when we got a little older it's, let's go to Niagara on the lake instead and do the wineries <laughs> and take in the theater show and yes. have a really nice old-fashioned Victorian hotel and stuff so it's just but it's so great because they're only like I said they're like 15 minutes apart maybe I think there's a shuttle bus that goes back and forth between them right so you get two very different kinds of weekend and you can really shove them both in one weekend and it, it's just fun to go from that oh I feel like I'm in the 18th century small town to oh I'm like in a mini Vegas and yeah it's got for any stage of life you could go party or even if you're older and you still like to hit up the like more lively scene but then you oh, can go sure. down the yeah you could go down the road yeah. and hit like the more slower paced <laughs> more relaxed the more artsy stuff for sure yeah I love that I, I could definitely see me putting that on my bucket list I the one thing I am I'm sure you being Canadian you hear all like the the jokes and stuff like that but I remember one of the more fascinating things was the like the vending machines like first like we were like oh the alcohol the liquor store closes at eight or something we're like oh shit we should go get some for the hotel if we want it now and then there was something that oh was it the vending machines from like Doritos was like fromage nacho and <laughs> nacho flavored cheese and I was like oh I forget we're like in another country and they have 
another language that they speak here. It was like, it was really funny. Oh, it was like, not like a culture shock, but it was like oh, a reminder. <laughs> a reminder. They, yeah. We're yeah. a bilingual country, the Francophone, the French Canadians. Yeah. It's funny because when I was writing my first novel, like I had some people who were from some characters who were from Montreal and stuff. And it's always just funny to get, because my editor and my agent are both American, to get those notes about those questions about the culture and these, <laughs> these things I just take for granted. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a weird French Canadian thing that they probably wouldn't know that Ontarians know. Or I had, I think in the first chapter, I had a character who was like, this job's okay. It has dental. And like the editor's note was, I thought you guys had free healthcare <laughs> in Canada. And I'm like, technically we do, but dental's this whole other thing. If you're under a certain age or over a certain age, you get the cleanings for free. But if you're an adult and this, and that, this is a whole complicated thing. I'm like, maybe I'll just change that line. <laughs> That is so funny. I know it's a little bit like, how does this translate to like American readers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it does, which is fun because our cultures are not dissimilar. And I grew up near the border going back and forth all of the time. I had to go to New York a lot for work and stuff. So I don't think of it as being a huge culture shock. But then you're right, you have those moments. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm in a different country. There are things to yeah. explain here. <laughs> and that is always one of the jokes, right? Between Canada and America. Oh, how's that healthcare system going for you? Shut up, it sucks. It's things like that where it's, that's so funny. And it's interesting because when I first pitched my first novel, like I said to my, I said it in Toronto and I said to my agent, do you want me to flip this to New York? Like I can, instead of Bay Street, do you want me to make it Wall Street? Like will it make it more marketable? Or just, it's, it's something people don't know about. She's like, no, I actually think the Canadian setting is really interesting. And then when we uh, sold it to Berkeley and the editor came aboard, Kate was like, no, I think this is really interesting. And then she's like, for the second novel, pick another Canadian location. Like we like these kinds of Canadian aspects you don't really know about because there's, there's lots of things set in Toronto, but not necessarily a lot set in Toronto's financial district. And there's a lot right. set in Niagara Falls. I don't think a lot of Americans know a lot about Niagara and the Lake, even though we do I mean, I don't a lot know of cross-border tourism. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't know why. Yeah, it's a lesser known that. gem, right? Yeah. <laughs> I even with going with re regarding your first, I don't know why I didn't assume that there would be a equivalent to Wall Street in Canada. Of course, like, why not? Yeah, that's you funny because I mean? then you go to London, London, England, and the Londoners are like, they have, they have a couple, they have Canary Wharf and stuff, but what they call is the city. So instead of a Wall Street worker, you're a city worker. And that was very confusing the first time I went to London. So I'm like, oh. isn't all of London a city and I didn't understand the city was their financial district like Wall Street oh yeah Americans have Wall Street we have this everyone's got their own little thing going on right <laughs> I know that's what that's one thing I have to remember when I travel I, I know it's been a while since I've traveled out of the country I think my last trip was like Ireland five years ago but I just remember I meet people from all over the world like when I went to Germany it's like people who were taking the same tours as us London like Canada still like they're all from everywhere else and I'm like of course the Americans aren't the only people who travel to different countries and then people don't only come to America of course a Canadian probably want to visit Germany of course a person in England would want to visit there's no reason why I wouldn't meet someone from another country in another country like I don't <laughs> but it was like it was, it was cool to talk to meet people like that yeah, I think oh. my last trip, my last international trip before the pandemic hit was to Dublin. Mm. And it was my first time going there. It was great. It was a lovely place. Yeah. Did you go to any of the landmarks or Guinness or Jameson or anything like that? 
We saw the Guinness buildings. They were closed, but we went and saw Trinity College and I think it was an Oscar Wilde Museum. We did some of those. We actually went at Halloween and we had no oh. idea what a big deal Halloween is in Dublin. Oh. It is oh, a fun. crazy, crazy street party. Oh, did they you go to like the bar seriously. and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just like the streets were filled with people. We were right down in the cobblestone lanes where all so the did bars you bring are. bring a costume and, like, and everything? No, because we didn't know. <laughs> we just thought it's Halloween trick-or-treaters. I'm like, yeah. no, it's an all-night party in Dublin. They take it very seriously. That's so fun. That's so funny. So what did you You didn't stint yourself? You just went to, to go party? Oh, well, yeah. Just, just we're walking up for dinner. And we're like, oh, this is happening. All right. Like I got to weave we through went... some like superheroes here, like just to go to dinner. <laughs> yeah, it was bizarre. And then just they partied all night. And and then a couple years before that, I had been to Edinburgh and we were there for Hogmanay and just cause went over the Christmas holidays and, and, and stayed into the new year. And then Hogmanay happened and we're like, hey, there's a whole procession of people with flaming torches <laughs> walking down the street. It's a big deal here. So it's really nice when you get to when trips just match up with big cultural events like that and you have no idea that what is to expect. Fun. It's, it's so not your country but just, it's fun is hogmanay just like exclusive to scotland or what is that i don't know if it's exclusive to scotland but it's a big deal in scotland and it's like their new year's celebration okay. um i think it takes place a couple days after but they do a massive procession and there's flaming torches and there's people dressed as vikings Oh. I don't want to I don't want to speak about it too much because I'm sure I'll get the details wrong but I just remember just like seeing the procession with flaming torches and being like this is very cool yeah when you come to Canada during certain weeks like if you go to Ottawa during the winter festival you'd be blown away by the participation everyone's out on the rideau skating there's people who are like part of the festival who have hot chocolate tanks strapped to their backs as they skate oh, on the river <laughs> and they'll come and fill up your thermoses for you and they do ice sculptures and there are beaver tail treats and just it's this incredible outdoor festival and i see i live fun. in ottawa for a bit i see tourists not from ottawa who just wander into it what is this Welcome you can pick Canada. out the tourists by their facial expressions, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's fun to go to other countries and be that tourist and be like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. That's so fun. Yeah. Because we went, we went to Ireland. We went, we did an escorted tour. So like those excursions, like we were able to do because they were planned, like Guinness tour, Jameson tour, things like that. And I just remember... I don't know. One of my favorite parts was like meeting someone like the different dialects because we went both to the east and west coast because I think to get from one side of the island to the other, it's like a four or five hour drive in Ireland. Ireland is a small country. And then we learned what was it? I remember going waiting for the Jameson whiskey tasting and tour and they give you like a free drink ticket while you're like waiting for the tour to start. You drink through your tour and you get three options. One was like Oh, a Jameson and ginger ale with a lime or a shot or Jameson on ice or something like that. It was like, yeah, it was, it was like, I just remember it was like three different choices. And I was like trying to be responsible. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do the Jameson and ginger. I'll do the mixed drink instead of just a straight up whiskey meat or whatever. I was trying to be responsible. And then I remember this guy who was like from the, the West Coast, the, from the opposite side of the country, his accent, like he had such a thick accent. Like sometimes I had a hard time understanding him and he was like super friendly. But I remember he was like, what'd you get to drink? He's like, what'd you get to drink? And then I was like, you're going to hear me doing like a horrible Irish accent. But I was like, oh, I got a Jameson and ginger ale. And he was like, they spent all that time taking that shit out. You're going to put it back in. 
And I was just like, I'm just trying to be responsible, man. But they were like, he was just like giving me shit. Oh, like what? No, like you're here. What are you doing? So I just remember things like that where it was like super fun. And because I'm like half Irish and that was on my bucket list. And so I was like really excited. We, My husband and I took my parents there. Yeah, I just remember that was like such a fun time. And like I, a lot of the things like it's, I don't know, when you go traveling, you can't help but compare it to like other places that you've traveled. So that's why I'm thinking like that Niagara on the lake. And like the fact that it's a, a real place and I just could p- picture the vibe in my head. I thought that was like, I just thought it was like super cute, super, oh, maybe like I'll, I could probably just like go chill at a coffee shop and read all day. That sounds like a great idea to me. <laughs> just yeah, like, absolutely. And uh, you know what? They encourage that because they have a gorgeous coffee shop called Balzac's and it's just bright yellow in an old house. It's so cute. And they have the loveliest little independent bookstore called the Old Niagara Bookshop. And it's been there forever. And the lady who runs it just knows her stuff so incredibly well. And the just beautiful editions of books you'd never see in the more mainstream stores. And uh, you just find all kinds of gems in there. I found my copy of Jane Austen's letters in there. Hardcover, oh. this embroidered kind of front. It was absolutely gorgeous. And and just 15 minutes down the street, you're in St. Catharines, which is next door to Old Niagara. And there's the Thistle Bookshop and Cafe, which is an old stone building, this old brick building as well. Gorgeous books, the little cafe. So it's all got that that lovely vibe. Which I guess is why I was talking about the difference between a Niagara Falls trip and a Niagara on the Lake trip. And lovely that you can do both, but that's more than Niagara on the Lake. Have a glass of wine, have a fancy coffee, go to the bookstore you're half Irish. They've got a shop called the Irish Shop, and it's all scarves and clothing and jackets and jewelry imported from Ireland. It's absolutely beautiful. What? You do great shopping there, too. Yeah. They've got a store called Beau Chapeau, where they'll sell you all kinds of hats, but they also do costume hats, like fascinators for weddings and things like that. And they have a little workshop next door where they make the hats or they can touch up the hats and stuff. So it's just a really fun experience. You're like so a I, don't, I don't feel I got sure. even a tenth of it. Yeah, I, feel <laughs> I don't even got a tenth of it in the book because it's just so amazing. Yeah, you've convinced me to add it to my bucket list for sure. That sounds like such a cute, relaxing, even just for a long weekend. It sounds like you could probably spend a week there, but four days would be enough too. That sounds super. Oh cool. yeah, a long weekend would be great. We got a lot of people over the border coming for the long weekend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you go during the summer and the parking lots are just all U.S. plates, which is funny. Oh. <laughs> which is if you go across the border to like an Olive Garden, it's all Ontario plates. That's <laughs> on the cars. Yes. Yeah. We don't a have Olive Garden in this country. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to add it to my bucket list of things to do for a long weekend. So okay just a few more questions I I don't know I feel like we rambled on but I love that we talked about geese and Canada and Ireland for a hot second so what were this is a two-parter for you what were the most challenging parts to write and what were the most enjoyable parts to write I really enjoy writing the comedy bits so there's a fair amount Persuasion's a fairly serious book but I did put a fair amount of physical comedy in there just because, again, you've got a lot of pining and a lot of angst, which is so enjoyable. But I wanted to change up the tone once in a while. I love writing physical comedy. It's really hard to do because you're picturing a scene in your head. And then you're like, how do I actually describe this if people can't be seeing the picture, seeing the scene in my head? The part that was most difficult to write was Ben's Ben Wentworth's letter to Anne. Because in the mm. original Persuasion, 
he writes a letter to her and it is just the most heart-stoppingly romantic pining just the famous line says i'm half agony half hope and just how can you come even close to matching that and i thought and how am i going to get this in a letter because why wouldn't someone just text nowadays or send yeah. an email <laughs> and that's not the same as having a letter in your hand so i took a couple of runs at that and i won't spoil it for people how she gets the letter but i did get it into letter format proper handwritten letter and i did my best to do a modern sentiment of what that letter is. But I, I don't think anyone can touch Jane Austen for romantic declarations and certainly not the original, the OG persuasion. So that part was brutal to write. I hope people enjoy it, but it was brutal to write. And you foreshadowed it too a little bit. Like I could tell some thought went into that for sure because you were trying to like add that outcome to his personality, right? Yeah, I was trying to give him a quirk that would make it Re- this is where I get into planning instead of pantsing, right? I was trying to give him a quirk that makes it reasonable that he'd write her a letter. But I also just honestly, I love giving my heroes quirks just to make them more real. And in Jane and Edward, something that a lot of readers, readers have been lovely reaching out to me on Instagram and tell me what parts they like. And something they all like from Jane and Edward is that the hero, Mr. Rochester, has personified his office lamp, which he has named Lamp. And he talks to it and he cares about it. And he's very upset when it falls off his desk and breaks and he has to put it back together. And so I wanted to give Wentworth a similar quirk because I think the quirks make them charming. So I gave him this habit that he's always scrawling notes to himself in inappropriate places on the back of an essay or on a receipt or something like that. And so it makes sense that he'd send a letter to her. He'd leave a letter for her to find rather. Yeah, I enjoy that. I think it's really important because you like, yeah, like they seem so sure of themselves and they're like important business oriented men. They're, they put off uh, this facade of they got their shit together. But then you add, I love that he personifies his lamp and he uses that to work his shit out. Like, I love that. Where he, <laughs> And then or um with Ben, where he's just like, he looks like he has, he's grown up a little bit, but he's still just little reminders here and there. And then fucking gum wrapper or something <laughs> yeah everyone needs their cute little like, their personality defects but they're not really defects they're things that make them individual and again they when you're going for a one-two pairing trope when you're going for a real romance and like what we were talking about with rochester and jane rochester's not everyone's cup of tea but he's jane's cup of tea so you want to give them those little unique signifiers on their personality that you're like yeah these two are meant for each other this is a perfect match yeah, absolutely. I like, yeah, I enjoy that. Just making, humbling them a little bit, right? <laughs> Bringing mm-hmm. them to, more down to earth for sure. Um, all right. This might be another tough one. Um, what advice do you have for Anne? What advice do you have for Ben? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an agony aunt. I'm just, I'm making them dance. I'm the narrator. I think In the original Persuasion, there's a great conversation between Anne and Wentworth once they've gotten together and they've resolved all their differences, where they're talking about the fact that it's been an eight-year separation. And Wentworth says, we had to solve X, Y, and Z. Could we have solved that two years after our breakup? And the answer is yes. Maybe they did need to break up the first time, but they probably could have gotten back together two years later, not eight years later. So it's that six years of wasted time and pining. And I I don't want to change, I don't want to give advice because I would change the end of persuasion, but it would have been, it would have been to have pursued that window after the two year mark and not spent so long pining for each other, but they both had to grow up 
And they both had to make realizations about their lives that I think are had to play out the way they played out, or they wouldn't be such psychologically rich characters that Austin gave us. They it's and there's little echoes of Pride and Prejudice there too, right? Because he's gone off because of his pride. She's rejected him. And mm-hmm. and she's unable to undo the damage of hurting his pride so much and breaking his heart, even though she broke her own. And yeah. she's unable to completely dismiss the reasons that made her break up with him in the first place. So she needs to see that he's come back and some of those reasons have been resolved. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. No, I ask authors that all the time with advice they would give to their characters, but then they're like, well, if they listen to me, there wouldn't be a book. That is the problem. That is the problem. We would have resolved Wentworth and Anne after two years and there wouldn't be eight years second chance romance that brings us the beautiful longing and the angst. I know when I was reading it, I was like, eight years is such a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. It's, a, it's it ends 19 to to 27. It's a big but change. Even, yeah, that's your original novel still. Yeah. You're still growing yeah, I up. I made a little older. I think I, what did I make her from, from 24 to like, 32? Right. Um, yeah. Like from yeah. at little after college or in college, at end of college to. Yeah, I yeah. wanted that. That was a translation I wanted to make to modern times because I think a lot yeah. of people have those big romances in their university years, and then maturity comes a little later. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes you realize, oh, the universe is bringing them back together. And sometimes I don't know if you're like me, you're like, oh God, thank God I did not end up with that my college boyfriend. It's but that was like so endearing. It was so cute, and I was happy for them. I agree with you that maybe eight years was a little bit too long. It's a bit I much, and you've got character. You've got real life people who are very mature in college and, and meet their love and they get married and it all goes well, but then you would yeah. not have a book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Melody Edwards, where can we find you online and on social media? I am on Instagram and on Twitter. I think my Instagram handle is Melody Writes Edwards. Come and say hello. And yeah, the book comes out February 27th in all stores. Perfect. Oh, are you, is there anything that you're working on next that you could talk about without getting in trouble or what's I next am, for you? I'm working on my third book. It's going to be probably an original plot line this time. And I think I'll leave hey. it at that because <laughs> I don't have my plan nailed down yet. So I don't want to commit to things that might change. There you go. There you go. So it's like a little, little bit of pants are in you creeping in. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a little bit of panting when the characters take hold. Hey, you know what? Do you do what works for you? That the goose didn't come out of nowhere, right? Maybe it did, but it worked really well. So Melody Edwards, once persuaded, twice shy, like you said, that comes out on February 27th. Thank you so much for speaking with me about this. Like I said, And like you said, reading Persuasion is not a prerequisite, is not mandatory for reading this book. This was so enjoyable. I recommend it to anybody who likes the retellings, who likes contemporary romance, the second chance trope and all that good stuff. So it was a very cute, very lovingly read. And feel free to come back when you want to talk about your next project. Oh, I will. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fun. And there you go. That was Melody Edwards talking about Once Persuaded, Twice Shy. That comes out on February 27th. Go ahead and check out the show notes uh, to find links on where you can follow her on social media and her website and where you can purchase the book. Pre-orders really do help the authors. So if you are listening to this in time, pre-order that book for them if you're interested. Rate, review, subscribe. While you're searching on social media for your favorite authors, go ahead and find Cantina Book Club and hit that like and subscribe button. And if you're ever looking for book recommendations, you can always check out the book reviews on cantinabookclub.com. Go ahead and hop on over to Goodreads and Amazon. Give them a rating. It really does help the authors out. 
And as always, thank you guys so much for listening.